Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist, with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive our insights. Today's guest is Professor Norman Wiersba, who's the Gilbert T. Rowe Distinguished Professor of Theology and a senior fellow at the Keenan Institute for Ethics. He's the author of several books, including The Paradise of God, Renewing Religion in an Ecological Age, Living the Sabbath, Discovering the Rhythms of Rest and Delight, and Way of Love, Recovering the Heart of Christianity. And he's also the editor of one of my more favorite recent books, called The Essential Agrarian Reader, The Future of Culture, Community, and the Land. So I want to welcome you on to the deep dive. Yeah, thanks, Philip. Good to be with you. So I've I've really been looking forward to this conversation for a, a number of reasons, because as I've engaged with your work over the years, one of the things that has been, you know, very useful and impressive to me as someone who is a secularist, so I'm not religious at all, but I do feel that the religious tradition and history and iconography is incredibly important. Mm. And as I've come to know your work, the fact that you tie it, you tie that tradition, which is not usually in the space from my know-how of sustainability, and ecology, you you tie those things so closely together. It's been really wonderful to to connect to that type of work because I think there is a very strong spiritual tradition that is important, regardless of what one's particular faith might be in traditional way in which we think about faith. So I really want to start off with after that prelude with you sharing, you know, how you've come to doing the work and thinking about these issues of ecology, sustainability, our social structures within a theological framework? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So, I mean, I think part of it is is biographical. I, I grew up farming in Southern Alberta in Western Canada, and I grew up amongst people who had as sort of the fundamental assumption that they made in the farming work that they did, the idea that the land and the animals, that these were gifts, that they were something to be cherished, something to be taken care of, and something to be honored. And so the mistreatment of animals, strictly forbidden. You don't waste anything with water or with the soil. And it's this sort of ethos of care that just permeated the kinds of farmers that I grew up with. And that kind of farming, I realized, was on the way out. And we felt it on our own farm because the pressure was to really industrialize our operation. And to industrialize an operation is to really change what you think about land, what you think about animals. And what happens is you move from thinking about places, lands, creatures as gifts and you start to think about them more as commodities or as units of production. And when you move into an industrial agricultural framework where the margins of profitability are so narrow, you have to maximize yield all the time. 
And so the pressure to cut corners, the pressure to to make the animals get fat faster, I mean, you end up degrading your fields, you end up degrading the animals that you you have. And I just started to see how it's a subtle shift, but it changes in the most fundamental ways what we think about the world, what we think about our place in the world because, you know, if you think about how we treat people, do does any one of us want to be treated as a commodity? And the answer, I think, is clearly no. But that commodification logic is applied over and over again then in the way we treat living things, whether it's land, whether it's animals, whether it's the plants, and certainly also the people. I mean, the history of the commodification of people is very old, slavery all the way through to today's migrant agricultural workers who are not being treated as human beings that are gifts to be cherished. And so, I'm just trying to think about, you know, what are the traditions that help us think about the world as a gift? And it tends to be religious traditions. And I mean religion in a very, very broad sense here, all the way from indigenous peoples to hunters and gatherers, uh, foragers, fisher people, and then also agricultural people, and then all of the world religious traditions that, you know, are pretty well known from Buddhism, Hinduism, all the way to Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. It's interesting that you kind of you kind of jumped me in a way to some of the stuff I was I wanted to get at the back. Okay, sorry, man. <laughs> no, but that, no, that's awesome because that's why the essay that you wrote in in the Agrarian Reader really really like resonated with me. And I think pe- people who know me, listeners, and those who know me personally, I'm a city kid, right? So I think in many ways we have very different upbringings, right? Yeah. I grew up in Brooklyn. 70s and 80s, it's glass, concrete, you right. know, like just an yeah. urban environment. So, you know, my idea of like being out in nature growing up was Central Park, right. Prospect Park every so often. Even the parks in my neighborhood were like urban parks, right? They were kind of like playgrounds and, yeah. you know, not these nice playgrounds nowadays, right? Like where yeah, yeah. they have like rubberized ground and everything. Like it was just, hey, you fall off the monkey bars, you're just going to break your arm. That's, <laughs> right. just the way, that's just the way it was, right? Yeah. But as I've gotten older, it feels like there's a deep connection to, in a way, rediscovering something that on some level I've never known, but yet probably have always known because humans are connected. We are part of this as a continuum, right? So again, a lot of editorial, but what really struck me in that in that essay, and, and it's weaved in throughout your work and even in that response, is that you make a very strong parallel to our current social structures, the historical legacy of slavery and disenfranchisement, the struggle of indigenous peoples that persist, the kind of migrancy that we see not only for labor, but to escape climate change. You know, all of those things are very present conditions, past and present conditions, but also are very rarely framed as a connection to the land, much less a connection to a theological tradition. So getting kind of to some of the dichotomies that I saw or contrasts where I think there's interest to discuss is these ideas of science versus 
the natural way of living. You know, even hunter versus gatherer, mm-hmm. limits versus possibilities, right? Like you talk about that in the essay. So I want to give you space to explore some of those things that seem like they're in opposition to one another. Yeah. But they actually might not be. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of places to go with that one. So let's just get started on this one. I think what's important for for listeners to understand is that for the vast majority of human history, like I'm talking 99% of the time that human beings have existed as a species, people have lived with what we can call a pretty intense ecological understanding of their place in the world. They knew that to drink, they had to rely on streams or groundwater, or they had to rely on rain. They knew about weather systems. They knew about how the food they ate came from plants or it came from animals. They just understood so much about how their bodies were not just figuratively, but literally stitched into the land because the land provided our energy, it provided our textiles, our building materials, and our food. And that's just so different compared to where many people live today, right? You talked about urbanization briefly at the start here. And, you know, just think about this. At the year 2000 is the first time that more people in the history of the world live in cities than live in the country. It's forecasted by 2050, three quarters of the planet will be living in city, many of them in megacities, high density. And the character of these cities is that the experience that they might have had previously about how their bodies need the land, that's gone. It just doesn't exist. And so we're living in this experiment where we're figuring out, can people know who they are as creatures embedded in ecological realities if they're living in places where those connections can't ever happen, right? In 1800, right, 10% of the people lived in cities across the world. And those cities were not big cities, right? There wasn't yet a city of a million people. London was the biggest by far. And then other cities were well behind London in terms of population. So that's just one thing to have in mind, that we're in this really new time in the history of the world where so many people don't have a kind of regular, visceral, intimate, practical engagement with non-human realities that even if you're not connected to them, you still are because we go to grocery stores, right? We use energy. We have to build stuff. So all that stuff is happening, but it's happening for us in this really big, dense cloud of ignorance where we don't know. And I have to say, it's not malicious. It's not like people are now waking up and saying, I don't want to know anything about my embeddedness in ecological realities. It's just that the sort of structures of their daily living make it so that these things just don't appear. And if they do appear, it's as commodities. And so that's changed so much about how we think about ourselves and also how we think about the world in which we live. And so what I'm wanting to figure out is, how do we help people who are in urban contexts recover something about their embeddedness in larger than human realities because it does several things. I think on the one hand, what it does is it helps us overcome the kind of species arrogance that we might have. And we know that that species arrogance is causing a lot of trouble because we're destroying so much of the planet so quickly. And a lot of people aren't aware of it. 
And if they are, it's an issue that is so abstract, they don't know how to get their heads around it. Right? So species arrogance is one thing. But another thing is, I think, species loneliness. People are feeling that if we're the only show in town, the human show is only that interesting. There's a whole bunch of other stuff happening that involves other creatures, that involves beautiful places, that involves places that need to be healed, important work to do. And so when you think about how we've sort of isolated ourselves from this larger-than-human world, we live in, in a world that is called by Ed Wilson the Eremocene, the age of loneliness. And I think that's a sad place to be because I think people deep down want to know that they're connected to something beyond themselves, that their lives are contextualized by larger frameworks of meaning and life, and that you know, if you dig further, you might even get to the realization that maybe life really is a gift and we ought to cherish it. And that's all, I think, more difficult to come to if you're shopping for most everything you need in your life. A commodity doesn't communicate, you know, a gracious reality or a precious reality. A commodity communicates some business plan that somebody else is profiting from. And that's a different way about how you think of your place in the world. I want to jump on that business plan concept, right? Because we have obviously economic systems that we are operating in. And those economic systems don't really truly factor in the cost of something, right? So we, re we rely on balance sheets, we rely on income statements, we rely on cash flow statements, all of these ways of financializing our way of understanding. Mm -hmm. But yet when it comes to the way in which we use, interact, extract, not only our natural community, but the way in which we work with one another. Right. In terms of assigning wage, what's considered a living wage, what's considered um, a wage with dignity. Yep. We don't seem to apply true ecological slash human costs to have right. set things up that way, in the way we have. How do we get to a place where whether one is is rural or city-based, we start to build a different type of accounting? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think your framing of it is really valuable because if you think about how we live in a world in which most everything is commodifiable, much of it has been commodified already, we're seeing how the business models, which are constantly trying to make sure that they can increase market share, increase profitability margins, what that means is you're going to have to cut costs over and over again. And we see this in our economy today. And the place that you can cut costs is obviously going to be workforce, pay them less. And so you've got incredible wealth inequality. And this is, you know, it's a long story, right? When you think about how people who are sort of financial elites have constantly made their money by, you know, coercing labor, by taking public goods and privatizing them for their own benefit. And so the way you put it, I think, is really good, which is to say, how do you humanize or ecologize an economy so that you start to think about it in terms not of just profit margins, but the quality of life, right? GDP, which, you know, was developed 
shortly after or before the war was to figure out how much stuff does the United States have so that they could build their tanks or make their food provisions for soldiers, things like that. But now politicians use GDP as a measure of economic well-being. And that's crazy because it's purely a quantity measure when your question's the quality measure. Right? Is it a good life that people are living? And the guy who invented GDP actually said this should never be used as an indication of whether or not an economy is in a good place. Because from GDP point of view, it's a great thing when you have an accident. Because now you're going to have to pay somebody to fix the car. You're going to probably have to buy a new car. If you got hospitalized, there are costs there. It's a disaster from any human point of view. But from a GDP point of view, it's a good thing. So what we have to figure out is a couple of things. Can we have better measures for whether an economy is doing well? So what kind of quality, not just quantity, indexes can we come up with? But then I think the larger question that frames all of it is, to ask this very basic question, which we don't ask enough, which is, what's an economy for? Right? What's all the striving for? Because by many measures, human beings today who are living like you and I, we're enjoying more comforts and conveniences than the world has ever known. I mean, if you go back even a hundred years, we have the kinds of things at our disposal just by having a cell phone that people who were in the monarchies couldn't have imagined. And yet, it doesn't seem that we're happy. We're still wanting more. And so the question has to be then, at what point do we realize that the quality of life is more important than the quantity of stuff we have, the quantity of things we do, the quantity of what? I don't know. We just keep adding quantity, and it just gets higher and higher and higher, the number that we think if we get there, will be happy. And of course, our own experience teaches us that it ain't always so, that at a certain point we have to say enough and then focus on having quality experiences, not just having more experiences, having quality goods, not more goods, having quality work experience rather than more work experience. I agree with, with everything that you're saying. And the challenge I have is what I often tell folks is one of our biggest threats, and we have many threats in, in the world today, but yeah. one of our biggest threats is co-option. Yeah. And I think the current economic model is very good at co-opting philosophical ideas and ideas that have deep meaning mm -hmm. and turning them back into a commodity. And what I mean by that is, for example, I'm nodding along as you're talking, right? Because I'm like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and but then, Thanks, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm a believer, right? And then, but then I think about my work in culture and in strategy, where everything you said gets turned into now the experience yeah. economy, right. right? Or you know, these ideas of of local becomes, you know, farm to table right. dining experiences, right? Like it's like they turn what should be something communal into just another expression yep. to, to keep the, the mill turning, right? So I, I agree, but I'm like, how do we thread that needle yeah. where we're not 
what would deep things just don't become marketing gimmicks. Yeah, that's a great, great observation. I think I don't have a, a, a magic solution here, but I think one thing that is really important is to try to build communal structures around which you try to live out a different kind of way of being. And what I mean by that is, absolutely, you can commodify all the kinds of experiences that we've just been talking about. But what you do is, if you can unplug from all of the streams of marketing that come to us, and you know we're still constantly being bombarded by them, and make your point of reference, not marketers, but fellow people, that makes a big difference. So for example, I'm thinking about you know, you mentioned the idea of local food and farm-to-table movements and that kind of stuff. Absolutely, that can be commodified. Some of it's actually not so bad because it will support farmers who are growing good food, so that's okay. But I'm thinking about something like local currencies that we're seeing pop up in some communities in, in the United States, like Ithaca, New York, or Great Barrington, or Massachusetts, or some other places where the community is saying, Let's turn to each other to try to help each other live the kind of life that is good for the community, right? So instead of a person, say somebody wants to start a, a small business making something for the community that clearly is, is beneficial to the community, instead of going to a big federal bank, they go to a community bank, which has a local currency. The loans tend to be smaller, but what happens is that people in the community say, we're going to support you in this venture because if you fail, we lose out on our investment in you. And so the kinds of face-to-face -face relationships that are going to happen when people are focused toward a community and are being nurtured by a community are going to be different than the kinds of faceless institutions that we would otherwise go to to get the support we need. Right, this Harvard historian that I read a while back named Steve Marglin wrote a book called The Dismal Science. And in it, he talks about how if you look at the institutions, the political, social, economic institutions that develop in the 19th and then 20th centuries, almost all of them have as one of their effects the turning of people into individuals who no longer rely on other people, but rely on these faceless institutions which has the effect of leaving you alone. It has the effect of making you sort of a hapless consumer of the services that these institutions are going to provide. So having a way to get people to turn to each other, rely on each other more, I think can be a way to minimize or at least sort of tone down some of the commodification we're talking about. And I think this can be happening on lots of scales, right? It can happen in big cities in terms of neighborhood cooperatives, you know, and we see it happening, right? Sometimes uh, faith communities can be centers for this, right? Synagogues or mosques or, or churches where they say, we're going to be providing some of the services that our neighborhood really needs, whether it's a community garden or it's after school programs for kids or, you know, all kinds of stuff. And that becomes a way of people saying, there's a person or a group of people that are in my life, and I'm going to connect to them because they're going to look out for me, and I'm going to be looking out for them. I think that leads us to another segue, mm -hmm. which I think is is really important because I want to. What I want to do is tie some of these movements that we're seeing to kind of our our current moment in time, where we're seeing, you know 
here in the United States and, and globally, but I think it is the generator is here in the United States, these social movements toward, toward justice, right. particularly around Black Lives Matter. And prior to that, a growing climate change movement led by young people around the world taking to the streets, having climate strikes. And we're seeing these, these movements that are born out of wanting to change things. Yeah. Wanting to tie things together in a, in a world that becomes more, more viable. So that allows us to kind of set a scene. Yeah. And I'm curious where you see the kind of theological tradition connecting to those to those movements yeah. either in in part or in in whole yeah i mean it's a great question and i think it's so important that we've got these movements happening right now because i think for too long people have been able to assume and it happens worldwide but you know i see it especially in america that everything's cool here look at how much there's prosperity in this country and there's been this sort of willful blindness about the sort of the dark side of all of this progress, right? That the progress of this nation has been built upon the sort of first you start with the erasure of indigenous populations through disease and then later on planned warfare. Then you have enslavement of peoples coming to this country that built most of the wealth of the, the country in the 19th and 20th centuries. And then you get the continued right segregation of peoples, the continued dehumanization of peoples in the Jim Crow era. More recently, you get it in the talk about immigrants. It's just hor- horrifying to think about how we could assume that all of this is just, it's the acceptable cost of progress. And then even more recently, right, the environmental movement sort of starts in the 1970s in this country with Earth Day. But we are beginning to understand in ways that we have not before how all of this wealth generation has depended upon either the exhaustion, the abandonment, neglect, or outright destruction of many of the habitats, first in the United States, but now all around the world, right? So that globalization becomes a means whereby wealthy elites in the North sort of suck all the resources out of the South. And we're talking human and natural resources. There's so much denial in all of this. And so these protest movements become powerful ways to help us say, you can't keep lying. You can't keep trying to push all this out of our view because this is real. You need to understand how the systems that have generated so much supposed progress have actually been on the backs and the lands of degraded bodies and degraded landscapes. Now, Do religious communities have a role to play in this? Absolutely. Because I think what religious communities can do, which is so important for this time, is help us recover a sense that lives are sacred, that places are sacred. Because if we don't start with that assumption, how are we going to get to the place where we can say we should sacrifice a lot to defend the well-being of particular people, of particular places? If we don't say that things are sacred, it's just fine for everything to be a commodity, then I think we've given up the game. The sad thing, however, is that we see so many 
faith communities not seeing this as the fundamentally important thing for them to do right now. They're embarrassed, many of them, because they've been the beneficiaries of the sort of dominant narrative of progress. They don't want to have to deal with the real implications that follow from an acknowledgement that life is sacred. Because if we believe that, and we don't just mean that sort of the fetus in the or, or the embryo in the uterus is sacred, but the whole life of a human being is sacred, that means a different economy. It means different workplaces. If we believe land is sacred, then suddenly the whole question of private property or the consolidation of lands into the hands of a few wealthy elites, that's off the table now. And we get questions like reparations. We get questions like land redistribution on the table. And that's terrifying, I think, for a lot of people to contemplate. But what we need to do is, especially in this time, when we are seeing that for our young people in particular, the future looks incredibly bleak. We have to be asking the really fundamental questions about what is the value of a life? What is the value of a human being? Does every human being count? And if not, why in the world not? You better have some good reasons because I don't see how you can defend the claim that some people are valuable, but others are not valuable. It's not what you would find in the best of religious traditions, I would say. It's interesting as I was kind of preparing for this conversation, again, as, as a person who works in culture, right? And, and that has a, a strong component of telling stories. And there's so many, not contradictory stories, but like what I would call like streams of stories that don't seem to come together yeah. that I feel if they were to come together, we'd find more ways to build solidarity with one another. And so some some very quick examples of that. And, and, and this is also how I came to these things, right? Like right. when I think about movements around climate change, climate crisis, like you said, Earth Day is such a seminal movement in the 70s. I think many people, when thinking about those types of conversations, those types of movements, they think of them as being very secular. Right. And they think of them as being very white. Mm -hmm. Then the, the other kind of other flip to that is when you think about indigenous communities, um, the history of, of enslavement here in the United States, where obviously African-Americans were part of the land, right. right? But yet people don't think of black people as farmers or naturalists or contributors in those in those stories and those communities have strong spiritual ties and the african-american community in particular if you think about black liberation theology has used the language of the gospel mm -hmm. to connect very much to social protests but yet none of that seems to come together <laughs> yeah yeah right and and so I'm, I'm curious like what what do you think about how do we connect these streams which seem to move they're not moving together they seem to be yeah, no, tandem and maybe they drip into one another but they're not coalescing yeah right right I, mean, I think one place where they are starting to coalesce more now is around this environmental justice designation which is different than just environmentalism Right. Mm -hmm. Environmentalism in America is kind of an odd thing because 
it begins with the idea that the most important environmental act is to preserve wilderness. And there's so much whiteness built into this because it's all about making sure that there are big playgrounds for wealthy white people to go to for their vacations. That's a lot of what it's about. And what that means is that, first of all, farmers are out of the equation, but then also urban people. And that's a huge mistake because the environment isn't just wilderness. The environment is every place. And so what's been exciting, I think, to see is that environmental justice, as it's developed, and, you know, interestingly, it started in North Carolina, where I live, where, you know, a bunch of church ladies in a very poor county in northern North Carolina decided they were going to put their bodies literally on the ground to prevent trucks carrying PCB toxic soils that, and having them dumped in their community. So that became an issue where they said clearly, if you abuse the land, if that's the logic by which you're going to live, you can't stop that logic from being applied to people too, right? So the abuse is always a twin abuse of people and land together. So if we're going to talk about a justice that relates to environment, it's got to be about the flourishing of people and place together. And so what's been exciting for me to see is how the face of environmentalism is no longer, you know, the older hippie white male or white couple driving a Prius or whatever. It's now young people, mostly women of color. I mean, it's huge, this transformation that has happened, and it's happened very quickly. And, you know, part of me wants to just get out of the way because I'm an old white guy. I'm part of the problem, right? Because it's my generation that has created so much of this mess. And to see young people who are saying, we don't want to live like you, we don't want to think like you, that's actually an inspiration because now we can listen to the people who really have you know, a lot at stake in what's going to happen in the next several decades. And they're forcing us to ask different questions. They're asking us to say, this has to be on the table now. You can no longer talk about how an economy is making progress because there are some people who are seeing their retirements grow where so many other people are just suffering and lands are suffering, right? They're broadening the scope of consideration. And I take that that's a really, really good thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm gonna say you're not part of the problem, my friend. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> oh, I've, I've, I I've read it. I've read enough to to know to know that that's that, that is. I'd, I'd push back on on that characterization. I understand broadly what you mean, but no, I'm not gonna let that sit out there without being interrogated. I love that idea, that notion that these things are shifting and. You know, when I think about these ideas, like I jotted down here, land, local sourcing, self-reliance, it, it made me think back to one of my superheroes, one of these people that I really, really respect that I, I don't think gets enough attention or, or accolades, but I think was very much at the forefront of a lot of what we're talking about, which is on um, Fannie Lou Hamer. Mm-hmm. And starting for those who might not know when she started the FFC, which is Freedom Farm Cooperative, and basically created a cooperative of using pigs, hogs as currency to build a self-reliant community. And it had a bank attached to it. And it had a lot of stuff that I can't do justice to in the moment, the time that we have. But I just think who she was and her, her role as, a, as an activist, 
both in politics, but then in cooperative economics and in the land where it's, I don't know, it's an amazing story to me. And I want to dissect a little bit of how all of that comes together in her particular story, but in any story, right? That that connection of land, local sourcing and self-reliance. And how do we take those types of movements, what you described in North Carolina, and expand them, not in the scale and growth way, but in a, you know, contagious way of righteousness, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, now you're speaking my language. <laughs> exactly, right? It comes, it comes out no matter what, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's that's really good. And I think, you know, one place that I would start is not so long ago in the news, there was a story about how black farmers in America were coming to the USDA, suing the USDA because of decades of systematic discrimination against black farmers, because millions of acres were owned by blacks at the turn of the 20th century. And through a very systematic process of prejudice and bias and neglect and all the rest, they were just, the land was taken away. And and the land has to go back, right? That's a starting point. You know, a book that I really love is by Bell Hooks called Belonging. And in it, she talks about her decision to leave New York City and sort of the elite academic world that she was in there and to return to Kentucky where her family was from and where she grew up. And she talks about the experience of people being on the land and how important that is for them. And she said, one of the hardest things in her view that happened to the black community after the Second World War and, you know, the warmth of other suns chronicles all this beautifully, mm-hmm. right? About how people yeah. went to the cities, right? And in the cities, they faced similar kinds of oppression because they were still living at sort of the the demands of the white boss, the factory owners, the shop owners, and so forth. And Bell Hook says what's so important is for people to connect, for black people to connect with the land again, because the land does not discriminate against black people. The land doesn't discriminate against people, period. The land is there for all people to work. And by giving their love to the land, they can experience the love of the land back, you know, in the production of food, in the production of beauty, a place for inspiration and and a kind of solace of being in the piece of wild things, as Wendell Berry describes it. And so this experience of reconnecting with the land, I think, is going to be really fundamental if we're going to talk about the kinds of stuff that Fannie Lou Hamer talks about, where, you know, if you are simply a shopper for all the things that you need in life, which means you have to have money, that means you're now dependent on employment. And then if you're dependent on employment, you're dependent upon what the boss or the corporation will do. You don't have much control over your life. Now, if you're a farmer, you don't have a lot of control either because you don't control the weather, you don't control death and disease. But at least there is a place where you can exercise your skill to try to grow some food for yourself, to try to make a home for yourself in which you're able to exercise your skill, your sympathies, your care about a place. And there is so much healing, Bell Hook says, but also so much dignity that accrues to people when they do something as basic as take care of a garden that grows food that you can share with the people you love. That's a transformative experience. And, you know, we see this over and over again, even today, when we look at 
people who are you know coming out of uh, health problems so medical communities are saying let's start gardening programs we see it in the world of incarceration where people who have been incarcerated you know find that being in a garden becomes rehabilitative for them and the connections i think are so so important to try to establish so you know that's a long-winded way of getting to the importance of developing connections, developing connections with land, with creatures beyond the human, but then also with communities, finding people who will love you back when you love them. And that's hard to pull off in a very sort of corporate, uh, faceless, institutional kind of context where you're not you're not a person. You're a unit of production or you're a unit of consumption. And, and both of those end up being pretty dehumanizing. Yeah, 100%. Uh, you know, in your essay, we, we talk about the Anthropocene and rethinking the human experience. There was a line that, the entire essay is great, but there's a line that really, to me, set up a question. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm just going to use this, and I'm just picking out like a, a section of it, where you you make reference to this age of humanity's ascendance is also the age of humanity's dissolution. Yeah. And that, that really jumped out at me because we're, we're talking about, again, those possibilities mm-hmm. where there's, there's limits and there's, there's boundaries. And that statement seemed to capture some of that. And so I wanted to give you time to interrogate those, those twin moments, right? We're ascending, yeah. but yet also dissolving at the same time. Yeah. I mean, one way to describe the the development of this Anthropocene epic that we're in now is that this is sort of the fulfillment of the dream that we get at the birth of modernity, which is to have control and mastery over the whole world. And we've been really successful. I mean, there isn't a place on the planet that we don't have a really powerful influence, sometimes even a determining influence. And we haven't just applied it to our places. We're now applying it to people when we think about things like a genetic modification of people or we're thinking about the development of artificial intelligence. And what we're seeing is that people have a kind of basic discontent with their world. It's not good enough. And so we got to improve it over and over again. Or our human lives, our human bodies aren't good enough. So we're going to do enhancements of varying kinds. Or our computational capacities are not good enough. So we're going to develop artificial intelligence programs. Now, where all this is heading, and this is something that you can read about if you study you know, AI, where you can distinguish you know, general artificial intelligence to things like super intelligence. And this is coming really fast, right? We're not talking centuries. We're talking decades, even years, there is this possibility that people in the field will acknowledge. And that is, if you think about how we've moved from, say, the intelligence of a mouse to the intelligence of a human being, there's a major qualitative difference between those two kinds of consciousness. Well, the kinds of stuff they're envisioning with super intelligence, where we've got machines that are computing and have more power that is at multiple levels higher and it really puts us in a position now of mouse to human to super intelligence. People will say, we're not talking about a human experience as you or I know it today. And so you have to ask the question, why would we try to create machines that are so intelligent 
that human beings become irrelevant. And where this becomes most practical in our own climate today is, why are we creating robots to do the work that people do? Because it renders people useless. What do you do with your life if a robot can do what you do? Does life then become meaningless? Do you become just one more element on the rubbish heap of evolutionary progress? People are starting to ask again, I think, and this is good, what's a life for? What, why, why do humans even exist? Because if we can develop machines that do everything better than us, more quickly than us, with much more power than us, then human becomes irrelevant. And, and I want to know is, why should we even try to do that? Why do we want to develop the technologies that make human beings irrelevant? That seems to me to be not just self-defeating. It's a deeply cynical vision of what this whole thing we call the experience of the world is about. So this is where the limit stuff comes in. We have abilities to develop these technologies. There's no question. And we also have the, the ability to develop technologies that will improve themselves you know, in ways that we can't even yet imagine. But could we put in place something like a limit that says, we're not going to go down this path because it's going to end up destroying us, right? There are plenty of folks, people like Steven Pinker at Harvard, who say, don't put any limits, don't put up any roadblocks on this superhighway that's taking us to superintelligence. And I want to say that's crazy. Right? Just to give you a little story about this, you know, one of my friends is a, an Amish man, his name is David Klein, and he mm -hmm. would do these tours with people who want to know about the Amish because they're quaint, right? They're nostalgic kind of people, all that sort of stuff. That's the caricature anyway. And so he'd be on a bus and he'd be with all these, they call them the, 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 the white people because they're, they're city folk mostly. They don't know anything about Amish life. One woman at the bus says, so what's one way to really characterize the difference between Amish people and us, us city people? And he says, well, we put things to the test by asking, will this be good for the community? And she says, can you give an example? And he said, sure. And this is, this is a few years ago. He said, how many of you on this bus would believe the statement that TVs are not good for family life? Every hand went up, right? Because it's mostly parents are saying, yeah, kids watch too much TV. It's not good for them, right? And then he said, okay, now how many of you have taken the TVs out of your house? Not a single hand went up. And he said, you know, in Amish culture, that's the difference. In Amish culture, we as a community, we raise the question. Is this technology good for us? Will it improve the life of our community? If the answer is no, the technology's gone. It doesn't even show up. And he said, that's the difference. That The Amish are willing to put limits on what they will accept into their community and what they will not. We don't do that. We're, we're in this situation where if it's possible, we should do it. And I'm not wanting to say we shouldn't pursue any possibilities, but we have to have some kind of framework by which we can say whether or not a supposed advance is good for us. And that invariably brings up all sorts of sort of moral questions about, well, how do you know something is good for us? And, and that takes us to the ultimate question, which is, you know, what's a human life for? But if we're not asking those questions very quickly, we're going to find ourselves in a place where most all the work is being done by computers or by algorithms or by robots or whomever, and we won't matter anymore. 
And I don't know that I want to live in a world where our life doesn't matter or where the lives of other natural creatures doesn't matter. Yeah, just because I always say, just because you can do a thing yeah. doesn't mean you should do a thing. <laughs> Those are two really um, competing ideas. You know, I, I want to make sure I, I get to a couple more things before we get to the last segments of the show. And I, I think this is pretty important for the moment that we're in right now, because you, in that essay, as well as other parts of your work, you, you talk about this fight for freedom as part of the, the liberation tradition. It seems to me that now, and, and again, all of this is my editorial characterization, is that, you know, when I think about freedom and I, and I tie it back to what we talked about, like a Black liberation theology or other traditions, that is vastly different from what, I, what I'm seeing right now expressed, particularly in the United States, as freedom as an idea of selfishness. Yep. That any, any constraint or restraint on what I want to do is wrong because of freedom. Yeah. But it's really not freedom in the way that, that I would think about it. Even more basic conversations around so-called cancel culture. It's not yeah. about freedom. It's like, you know, you just want freedom from responsibility, right? right? So I'm curious, like, how do you think about that idea of freedom? Because it does, it is yeah. a theological tradition and it's been weaved in your your work, but it seems to be very different in this moment. Yeah, no, I think you know one of the very saddest thing for me in this time is to see how people are using freedom as a way to say, I don't need to be charitable towards others. I don't need to be mindful of the needs of others. It's all about what I want and whether or not you're infringing on my ability to do what I want. That's a really sad thing to be seeing right now in our culture. And, you know, it's happening in so many different ways. And I think a lot of it rests on a very strange understanding of what we believe freedom to be. So, you know, for me to talk about freedom is fundamentally talk about love. If freedom is not happening in a context of love, it's going to be screwed up. It's going to be distorted and it's going to do a lot of damage because what sets people free is love. And I mean this in lots of registers, right? First, your ability to love yourself, right? So that you think it's even worthy for you to try to do something. But then ultimately to be within a loving community that you know is there to support you and look out for your best interests, right? So this is, this is a context in which you know that however you're going to try to express yourself or express your life, you're surrounded by people who love you who want to help you, and they're going to also, as part of that help, correct you from time to time, right? If you're being too selfish or if you're being arrogant or if you're being you know, too self-effacing or if you're being too hard on yourself even, or if you're too afraid, you know, these the sources of encouragement that happen in communal contexts become the, the, the space where you can really develop yourself most fully. Now, that's a conception of freedom in community not freedom by yourself, right? And as part of this conception of freedom in community, there is the idea that for you to develop yourself, you also need to be working to the development of other people because it only works if everybody's looking out for each other. And so the spaces in which people can maximally realize themselves 
are going to be the places that are nurturing. And a nurturing place, by definition, is a communal place. And what we see in the kinds of descriptions of freedom that talk about the infringement upon my individuality is that communal space is gone, right? And so I don't have to wear a mask because screw other people. They get sick, it's their fault, right? That's part of the neoliberal philosophy. Anything that happens is because of your own success or your own fault. And that's crazy because life has always been communal and we have to figure out how to build up community and build up the networks of nurture so that people can best realize the lives that are uniquely theirs to achieve. That's a that's a perfect place to to wrap it. You know, anything that combines love and community, I think is awesome. I want to get us to off the dome, which are just some rapid fire questions. They're tongue in cheek. First thing that comes to your mind. All right. And then we're going to go into the drop. All right. So you already said where in Canada you're from. I read your bio, so I knew you were Canadian, hence this question. Um, what is one of the one things that Americans think about Canadians that you would love to change our minds about? Igloos. <laughs> Do people think that's a thing? They think people live in igloos. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty wild. <laughs> that is crazy. Um, Stop thinking about Canada and eagles. That's never crossed my mind. Elk, maybe, but not eagles. See, that's because you're just much more enlightened than a lot of my other American friends. That's probably true. I will lean into that one. You know, you're at Duke Divinity School. If Duke Divinity School was a reality show, what reality show would it be? Oh, my goodness. I don't know enough about reality shows. I don't watch them. Is that really bad? <laughs> You're probably uh, better off. That's very much in, in line with that Amish example. I, I don't I don't even know what one would be. I've, I've heard of the Kardashian reality show, but I've never seen it, so I have no idea even. It's well, terrible. I'm pretty sure it's not that one. <laughs> no, I sure hope it's not that one. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's it. That's not knowing is just as good an answer as as knowing. Okay. Now you've also kind of in in this given us an idea of some of your background living on a farm. Um, so everyone knows the biblical story of Noah. I don't think we have to explain it. And if you were in that position, what would be the first set of animals you would bring on the ark? Otters. <laughs> I love otters. They're swimming all the time, but they're also on land, and they look like they're having so much fun. <laughs> That's a good choice. I love them, too. <laughs> yeah. And this is the final off-the-dome question. If you could only engage with one natural state for the rest of your life, meaning beach or forests or mountains or plains or what that's what I mean by natural state. Yeah. If you had to choose one of those and that's where you're going to be, yeah. which one would it be? Foothills. Foothills are the mountains. So you got the mountains behind you and the prairie in front of you and you get the best of both worlds. And it's, it's one of these eco zones where all kinds of stuff's always coming together. So it's, it's a pretty cool place to be. That's awesome. I'm, would never I watch a lot of documentaries. I never would have thought about that. Is yeah. there is this kind of a bonus? Is there a, a foothills region that we should be aware of, or I should be aware of, as someone who doesn't really know? Oh, I mean, there's there's lots of different kinds. I mean, I mean, I, I'm obviously thinking about the ones I grew up with in uh, on the slopes of the the Rockies, which go, you know, all the way from Alberta down through into you know Colorado and those places. So 
Yeah, there's, there's just a bunch. But then other mountainous regions have the same deal. I mean, if you think about South America, uh, alongside the Andes are these incredible foothills, really rich zones for all kinds of biodiversity. Awesome. So foothills, I'm going to add that to my list of places to go. So yeah. the last segment is the drop. And the drop is an opportunity for myself and my guests to share something with my listeners. It can be anything at all. You've, you've actually sprinkled some drops in here with some references as we've gone through the interview, but specifically in this section, do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Uh, you go first. Tell me what you got. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to read this because I want to make sure I get it right. I don't even remember how I came across this particular letter, but it's a, a 1979 pastoral letter called Brothers and Sisters to Us. And it was written by the U.S. Catholic bishops. Mm -hmm. and, it, and the official title is Pastoral Letter on Racism. And again, this was published in 1979. Yeah. And I, I came across this somehow, and I, I just read the language of it. And it was so much more direct and powerful than anything that I could imagine coming from a religious body today. Mm. And this was written in 1979, Catholic Church, not exactly known in American yeah. mental tradition as being particularly, quote unquote, liberal, right? But nonetheless, when I read this letter, I, I sent it to friends and I was like, God damn, like, you know, how were they saying this, these things in 1979? Like, it's, yeah. it's more direct than like the Black Lives Matter platform. Wow. You know, that people yeah. want a comparative. Yeah. And it just struck me that how did we move away from this sort of language and just clarity? So I'm going to link it in the show notes. And I just think it's an interesting read, regardless of where someone falls on the faith spectrum. It's yeah. good reading. It's good writing. And I think it's very powerful in this moment. And that is my drop. All right. Well, I, I mean, I, I had real trouble trying to settle on one. Can I give you two? You can give two. Okay, so, give so, so a book that I'm, I'm telling everybody they need to be looking into is by Robin Kimmerer. She's a, a Native American botanist trained as a scientist, but as she was teaching botany and biology to her students, she realized that what she had learned in graduate school was significantly different than what she had learned from her indigenous elders who think about plants not as objects, but as subjects. And her book called Braiding Sweetgrass is just wonderful. It's beautifully written, and it has the power to really change the way you think about life with, with non-human creatures. So that's one. And then the other thing that I've just recently come across is Neil Young's album, Homegrown. So Neil Young, Canadian singer, I just want my American friends to know, he was at this point in California where remarkable, I mean, James Taylor, all these different artists, Jimi Hendrix, they're all just doing this incredible music, so creative. And he actually did two albums and one of them was sort of written with his girlfriend in mind and they had a breakup. And so he put the album in a vault and instead produced this other one. I think it was called um, Harvest Gold or something like that. And, you know, of course went platinum and all that kind of stuff. But then this other album, Homegrown, was just sitting in the vault and they just recently released it. And it's got all these songs that he was writing at the same time. And there's some really good ones in there, like Love is a Rose. So check out the Homegrown album by Neil Young. Neil Young's a giant. I, I love that moment in time, Laurel Canyon. 
Oh um, yeah. There's a great documentary on Laurel Canyon that I recommend. That was my drop a couple of episodes ago. Okay. Um, so I need to watch that. I haven't seen that one. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. I would definitely, I highly recommend checking out. It's on epics and it's two episodes, okay. but it's really, really good. And it talks about Neil Young and, you know, Jackson Brown and all those folks out of that out of that time. It's got good music, a lot of good stories. That was a great drop. I'm gonna check that record out. Um, all right, man. This has been this has been great. I'm really glad we were able to have this conversation. I really want to thank you for being on the deep dive with me. Yeah, thanks so much, Philip. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having Professor Norman Wearsbud join me on the deep dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.